Welcome to the Uncommon History Podcast, your go-to source for fascinating stories from the past. On our podcast, we explore more obscure and often overlooked corners of history. From lesser-known tales to weird facts about history, our mission is to share the stories that will leave you surprised and entertained. Join us as we discover a world of history you didn't know existed. Welcome to Uncommon History Podcast, the podcast that explores the fascinating and lesser-known stories of the past. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, Season 4, Episode 2. What do you? Uh, what's What happened today in Kentucky history? What happened today in Kentucky history, February the 28th? Uh, not a lot, to be honest with you. We <laughs> Some days are just more, more boring than others. We've yeah. had a couple of these. 1807, Thomas Todd was named U.S. Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he served 19 years until his death in 1826. And who, never, was, who was Thomas Todd? I, wish, I think it's probably kin to the Todds in Lexington that married Todd Lincoln. I think mm. it would probably be the same family. I don't know that, but uh, we're just kind of stretching here. Uh-huh. I, I really don't know for sure, but I would assume that that could be, that may be, her grandfather. Okay. Uh, could be her father, maybe, but possibly her grandfather, either one. Uh, in 1848, the Western State Hospital was complete in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and the second mental hospital to be built. It's a good thing you and I weren't alive in 1848 because we might be a candidate for yep. uh, occupancy there. Could okay. be. In 1887, the U.S. courthouse was built in Frankfurt. It was also a post office. So, mm-hmm. Quote, courthouse, post office. But you know what it is now? No. In 1965, it became the Paul Sawyer Public Library. Okay. So you ever go to the library there? There's a little history. I've, I've been by it. I got a little UK basketball history. And okay. For those of you all who are Tennessee or other states. Well, listen, I, I'm going to tell I know you. This is not I, don't know, I don't know if I can stay a Kentucky fan. They're, they're killing me this year. They are absolutely testing our patience I mean, in every it's, way. I, I don't even get excited to watch the games anymore. I almost dread it, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. And I haven't guessed one right yet because the teams I think we'll beat, we don't. And the things teams we should lose to, we beat. So it just doesn't make any it's, sense. Can't make any sense. And so what's college basketball in general is kind of like that. What was it, North Carolina, number one team in the nation starting out? Yeah. As of right now, may not make the tournament? Yeah. Wow. Okay, in 1970, Dan Issel became the first U.K. basketball player to score 2,000 points. Wow. He actually – he he played for three years, and he scored 2,138 points. That's incredible. That's pretty neat, isn't it? And a great guy along with it Great. all right so uh what's uh, going to be our topic today well i finished a book here a while back and um again i've told you and, and i have talked about our podcast we look for unusual stories we look for a different angle about subjects we look for things that that it's uncommon it's uncommon it's unusual it's not your run-of-the-mill stories some of them kind of turn into that after you get past uh, some parts of it. Yeah. But this book by George F. Robertson, A Small Boy's Recollection of the Civil War, published around 1930, is a story of an eight-year-old boy's impression of what the war was and what the world looked like to him through his eyes. 
And, you know, uh, young people have a very unbiased view sometimes. And they're truthful. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they're honest. They're more, they see pure, they're they're more, they haven't been influenced by it. There's no gray. It's black or white. Right. Yeah. Uh Yeah. And so I thought that this would make an interesting podcast because I like the way, when I started reading it, I'm like, I like the way this guy thought, you know, he's because of his honesty. Most of the Civil War books I read, uh, most of the accounts come from one side or the other. Yeah, yeah. So you're getting a view from their biased view. Right. And we all are guilty of that because oh, yeah. we can only see it from our own eyes. But his eyes was kind of different. He lived in a town, and we'll get into that, that kind of went both ways. So he looked at things kind of objectively. It's a very interesting story. Uh, George was born in 1853, June 11th, in Greenville, Tennessee. His father was a farmer, and also he was an editor of a newspaper there called the Greenville Democrat. So he had his, his father had a background in journalism, and as we know, journalists keep up with what's going on in the world by vocation, and uh, they have a uh, probably the first to find out what's going on in the world. Um, he wrote this from his memory. This book was written from his memory. Uh, and in 1860, um, he, the war started. The presidential campaign of 1860 is the first thing he really remembers. So if we, we look at history, we know that that was Abraham Lincoln. We know that uh, he was not popular everywhere mm-hmm. as he is today. And in his time, he was a controversial guy in a sense. Um, his views on slavery obviously did not sit well with a good portion of the country. Um, he had remembered the campaign. He remembered the firing on Fort Sumter. And the newspaper uh, had been filled with talk, uh, war talk, he said, and uh, the, 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 the place was a, a, it was a lot of unrest. Uh, people were worried. People argued about Lincoln and Davis and the politics of the time. And as a young boy, he was just, he sat back and saw this and probably didn't fully understand what it was all about, but he knew what he saw and he remembered it very well. Uh, uh, he remembered seeing the governor foot in Mississippi in a church. And it was interesting, his, his view of that. He said he went to this church and this general, Southern general, or excuse Southern governor, I'm sorry, was given this fiery political speech and he said it was in a church because he said that there was no other building in town large enough to hold people that wanted to hear it Hmm. he said he looked at this place as a place of peace but the governor had turned it into a place of war he 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 said he'd never seen the building used in such a manner i thought that was interesting way to look at it yeah he said he was eight years old when Fort Sumter was fired on. He said he would never forget that day if he lived a thousand years. When they got word that the war had officially started, that was the, the first shot was at Fort Sumter. He said he had felt oppressed as if half the people were attending a funeral about the other half. Hmm. Um. No fun going on, no playing. The children didn't play, no fun. Uh, That day was very somber. 
And he said he remembers seeing eight young men come riding through town, and they were carrying a South Carolina flag, and he didn't understand what they meant, whether they were supportive of the South or they were mad at South Carolina. He didn't know, but he said three of those men would end up going over the mountains into Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, to fight for the Union. And he didn't know what happened to the other five. Huh. He said he never knew whatever became of them. Soon after the war uh, was declared, his town uh, really opposed secession. Um, most of Tennessee did vote for secession, but his, his little area, which is in the eastern mountainous more part of right, Tennessee, right. and that was true in Kentucky as well because they didn't have slaves and they didn't see the issues like the slaveholders did. Right. But, but he said, but volunteers began to enlist in the Confederacy and Union supporters in his area slipped over the mountains into Kentucky to enlist in Kentucky. Huh. So we know that uh, there was a big enlistment uh, post there later at uh, uh, Camp Nelson in yeah. Kentucky, which brought a lot of people into Kentucky to enlist there. Um, when, when Tennessee, he said, voted to succeed, it brought oppression and opposition from all over East Tennessee. Uh, he said his father was appointed postmaster at Greenville, excuse me, post quartermaster at Greenville, and the com commission of captain in the Confederacy. Okay. Because they were in control of the government in Tennessee. Right. Um, he was also, uh, the newspaper changed his name from the Greenville Democrat to the Southern Banner. Uh, he helped his father in the printing office. He said he was like a, what they called a printer's devil. As a young boy, he would go and set up and have to ink down the right. the, 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 the type. Uh, type and all that stuff, however that process works. He said it was a very messy, dirty job. It usually came out black all over you. And he said troops were mobilized in his town, and they drilled daily. And he said, he said all the boys, little boys, <laughs> went and got some, some spare planks and cut them out a gun that, sawed them out a gun, and they would drill, try to drill with them. Yeah. And they thought that drilling was great fun. He said he thought that he enjoyed soldiering very much <laughs> as a young boy. Yeah. <laughs> he, re he remembered a verse in a poem. He said, Oh, were you near a schoolboy, and did you never train, and feel that swelling of the heart you near can feel again? He said it was the only part of the poem he could remember as a child, those, those soldiers uh, had quoted. Right. He said many of the young boys, uh, 16 to 18, slipped away to join the Army. He said many a father would get up in the morning and to wake his family and find out one of his sons had slipped off or two of them had slipped off. And they'd sometimes, he said, they'd, most of the time when they would go after them and try to find them, it was to no avail because they'd already enlisted and they were gone. Some of them never came home yeah. again. He said that one of the worst things that happened when you're in a town, when soldiers come into town and there's a huge uh, occupancy of people that's going to be there a while that you normally don't have, that diseases break out. And he said measles had broken out in the camps, and it proved fatal to many. And we don't think of measles today as just being a, more of a nuisance. Yeah. But at that time, it was uh, very deadly. And... Uh, the government commandeered buildings all over the area to use as measles hospitals. And he said, if you saw a kid with measles or someone with measles, you ran from them. You didn't want to be around them. Sometimes people would break out and didn't know they had it. 
Right. And they didn't see it, and uh, you would see it, and you just stay away from them. And he said, even even though he tried his very best, he still got it. <laughs> <laughs> but he said he didn't remember being that sick. Said the worst problem that he had was his mama. The medicine he gave him made him more sick than the measles. He said. But uh, after some bloody battles in Virginia, in his part of the world, the trains would come down, and the wounded soldiers were brought in on rail cars. And then the war became very real to him. And he saw men with legs and arms missing. He saw people with ghastly wounds. Uh, he saw people dying. Uh, he saw war the f- at first hand, the ghastliness of it. And he said he could not get that out of his mind. He said if he lived to be a 1,000 years old, he would never be able to get those images out of his mind. He said they cared for the cripple the best they could. Uh, hospitals uh, were were just very crude, rudimentary, um, no medicines hardly to be had, um, disease rampant, you know, if pretty terrible, terrible Conditions, place to be. Yeah. Yes. He said, many times my father would not be home, so my mother was left to take care of everything. Now, here's, here's another part of the war that, that uh, you'd never hear talked about a lot, but the men were forced to do whatever, if it was to print a newspaper or to keep up the, the uh, news or propaganda or whatever. Um, but the women were left to do all the work and take care of the family um, and the children. And I don't know what's job's harder. I mean, I, sometimes I feel more sorry for the women being there than the men that are off, uh, you know, traveling, uh, except when they're in dire danger. But these women had a hard time. She had to do everything, and he said he, you know, she would just work from daylight till dark every day. Not didn't hardly ever take a break. Sundays, they would have a small church service or something if they could. But she said he, he said she worked every day all day long, and which aged them very quickly. Oh yeah, and the and the worry and the responsibility. Said soldiers would come by, uh, beg for food. Uh, some would steal from them. Um, she was afraid not to give them food sometimes that they would burn her out or, or steal from her, steal her. They're constantly stealing chickens, uh, animals was disappearing, cows. Just, you know, you get up every day, who knows what you was going to face. He said one day a, a train came by with a large uh, cannons on it. <laughs> this is kind of a humorous part of his story. And he was fascinated by a lot of boys. I know I was when I yeah. saw my first cannons. I lived, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So this train stops in his little town, and there's this huge big cannon there that you, the barrel, he said, had its mouth wide open. <laughs> <laughs> so he climbs up on this train car, and he climbs down in the cannon barrel. Oh, no. Yeah, now can you imagine? And then the train takes off. <laughs> So he comes climbing out of there, and he said, you ain't never seen anybody move as fast as I did. And he had to jump <laughs> from the train and end up moving. Uh, so not long after that little episode, trains coming to town, uh, there was on the train one day was a general price. And he said, there's not many eight-year-old boys that get to meet a general. And said he was with his father, had been in town, and General Price came to town, and his father introduced him to General Price. And he said his head stayed swelled for many days because there was no other boys in town 
that could have compare to that experience. Yeah, yeah, that's so a big General deal. General Price must have been a big deal. I don't know General Price very well. I think he went on out west in Missouri or somewhere. I think it was Sterling Price. I think it's probably who he was talking about. Uh, now, he said the war brought opportunities for enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> Here's an eight-year-old kid. He's thinking about how am I going to make some money off of this deal. He said the long trains of soldiers always, they were always hungry, and you could always sell them stuff. So he said they would gather anything they could find, walnuts, fruit, chestnuts, anything they could come up with and sell them to them. And he said he got to where he could make a pretty good cigar, and he would sell them three cigars for a dollar. Wow. And he said he could sell them as fast as he could make them. And he said there was another buddy of his that he got his mom to help him, and they would make pies and cakes, and he said they would sell out. Oh, but the problem be. was they couldn't come up with the flour and the, the sugar yeah. and the ingredients to make it. He said gambling was a was a passionate pastime of the soldiers. You know, we've talked about in war, the soldiers go from extreme boredom to extreme terror. And, it, you know, in between was just pure boredom. You know, going from sit around and hurry up and wait to, from zero to 60. It's, right, and you've been a soldier, come. so you know. Well, so he... <laughs> The gambling became, you know, is quite a quite a thing. So he thought he'd get involved in that gambling. <laughs> so he got this one guy, this one officer. He uh, bet him something about for three cigars. He said it'd take him in just a drop of a hat. He lost his three cigars and his money too. So <laughs> he, so he taught him less about gambling. Uh, he said his mom always told him, "said Boys, do not pay to gamble, even if you win. For when you do, you lose in character that you cannot buy back with money." Wise advice. <laughs> so then the war comes to his little town of Greenville, and not just not just wounded soldiers coming through there, but the, the armies start coming in. And uh, one of the problems he said when the armies started coming in and things started disappearing was, is coffee. Mm. That his mama was always complaining she never had any coffee. Yeah, that, and that was a she was. That would make me unhappy, that, too. <laughs> I would not like that. Um, they uh, could not get fabric. His mother complained about not being able to get fabric. Do you know how much cloth it takes to make a calico dress, by the way? I do not. He had this in this book. It took 14 yards of fabric. So next time you go to make a calico dress, <laughs> you go to Walmart, tell them you want 14 yards. Yeah. <laughs> Bridge burning, he said, was a problem. Uh, things we don't think about. Bridge burning. He said that that the unions would would send guys down and burn bridges to cut off supply lines to the right. Confederacy, and the Confederacy doing the same thing. And he said that um, it created shortages and hardships mm-hmm. because you couldn't move. It isolated you. You couldn't get stuff to you, or you couldn't take stuff to get paid or sell or create normal uh, economic conditions because you couldn't get anywhere. Right. He said uh, two soldiers were caught burning a bridge and in his town, or excuse me, in his area, and they brought him to his town. And he said they had a, a semblance of a court-martial, and he said his mother had told him not to go around the court-martial or whatever, but he said his morbid curiosity got the best of him, and he said they, it was a short trial, and he said they took him to a huge oak tree uh, at the edge of town and hung him, and he witnessed that, and he mm. said that he wished a million times that he'd never seen that. He said that's something he could never get out of his memory as well. 
Uh, he remembered going to church, uh, and his Sunday school teacher was a strong union man. And he pounded and believed that God was on his side. And he said then the southern men in the community, in the church, also believed that God was on their side. Yeah. So uh, both prayed to the same God and were trying to kill one another. And he, as a young boy, he looked at that kind of like, hmm. Contradicting, yeah. Yeah, he, it confused him. Um, he said one day the, quote, Yankees came to town, the rebels left. Uh, they robbed and pillaged the town pretty much, took what they wanted. Uh, they came to his, his mother's house, demanded food for themselves. He said my mother cooked for them all day, fear they would burn the house if, she, if he didn't. Uh, they didn't burn our house, he said, but they did burn some others in the area. Um, they stole all their hay and fodder, uh, took horses as they could find them. They would hide their horses like a lot of you heard those stories a lot. Yeah. Most towns would. Um, but it was really strange. He said when the when the Yankees left, they left a bunch of muskets there to the great joy of the boys because they all went and got them one. Wow! I wouldn't think you would leave arms like that. No. Now, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know. Uh, he said when the rebels came came to town, they they didn't stay long. Um, but then he talks about the death of General Morgan. And this is from a perspective, and I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't read a lot about the death of Morgan. I know he got killed in this town, but I don't know a whole lot about the details of it. But anyway, in his version of the story, he said when General Morgan came to town, of course he stuck out. He said he was, he was a big guy, and he was very flashy, a uh, very handsome fella. He stuck out. People noticed him. Uh, he, there was no hiding him. Uh, but the Yankees, he said, were afraid of him like nobody else for some hmm. reason. They dreaded his presence or dreaded hearing that he was in the area. Um, he said, I saw him several times. He had a huge frame. Uh, he said, I saw him the last night he was alive. And he spent it at the house of a lady named Mrs. Carrie Dickinson Williams. And... Um, there was something suspicious about the way he was killed. It's always been kind of a, how did they capture him so, get, mm -hmm. get to him so easily? Right. Um, he said the night, uh, really the house wasn't sufficiently guarded because the night, he said it was so dark and bad that nobody in their right mind thought that anybody would try to attack a place at night. Evidently, back then, we see, we have streetlights today. Yeah. But you go in a town that had only coal oil lamps, and I don't even know if they had gaslight back then, but you know it would be it would be a whole different matter than it is today. So they had different challenges. Um, he said that uh, General Vaughn trusted Scout William Carter was sent out, and the enemy was in advance. But Morgan's chief of staff, this Captain Williams, did not believe it, and just threw the note in the floor. He said, no force on earth would advance on a night like this. General Joe Morgan did not get the note. He didn't even see it. He didn't know no. anything about it. The Yankees came in, tipped off by a boy named L-E-I-D-Y was his last name, Lighty. And it was at the location of General Morgan's uh, headquarters. The Yankees surrounded it, and Morgan ran out the back of the house into a grape harbor. And they said they, they demanded him surrender. He said, I'd rather die first, and he started shooting. And they shot back and killed him. 
And he said, we lost one of the brightest soldiers to ever live. Hmm. Um, in South Carolina, in Newbury, South Carolina, they erected a monument to General Morgan. And it says, nor shall his glory be forgot while fame her vigil keeps. Our honor points that hollowed spot where valor proudly sleeps. And that's on his statue in Newbury, South Carolina, if it's still there. Wow, definitely uncertain times. Uncertain times. Uncommon little story about the Civil War. That was a great one. Uh, That's all for this episode of Uncommon History. We hope you enjoy the journey through the past and that you discovered some new and exciting facts about the history of the world around us. Don't forget to follow us on social media, subscribe to our feed, and stay informed about our new episodes. All of our links at the top of our show notes in the description. We look forward to bringing you more Uncommon Stories of the Past. Until next time, Uncommon History is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford.